0: Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 213. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. War is brutal. War is bloody, expensive, and hard, especially for those who fight it, whether they're Russian, Ukrainian, or American. And now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. Our military
1: members and veterans deserve our best because that is what we give to America. The withdrawal <clears throat> the withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion. And there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. Thank you for giving me this opportunity
0: to speak. Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews was a Marine sniper. He lost an arm. He said it was shredded and unusable. His abdomen had been torn apart. His body right now has about 100 to 150 ball bearings inside of it. And he told a congressional hearing this week that the August 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan was, quote, a catastrophe. Everyone should watch and hear Sergeant Vargas Andrews's story. He said, quote, there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. That's what he testified to before Congress this week. He's right. There was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. And there still is. Not one leader in Washington has been held accountable for the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Not one. I covered it on this show as it happened, and I said it then, And it's even more true now. The catastrophic withdrawal and the continued abandonment of our allies and the dismissal of our veterans is the great American betrayal of Afghanistan. And it's also a betrayal of our veterans. And it's not over. It continues in the lost arm and righteously angry heart of Sergeant Vargas Andrews. And in the lost lives and righteously angry voices of our allies still crying out for help right now in Afghanistan. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There is no issue in the Biden administration that I've seen that's outraged more veterans, especially post-9-11 veterans, and especially independent veterans. The vets that I know and I've talked to that are truly politically independent know that it was a catastrophic failure by President Biden and by Secretary of State Blinken, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and countless others. A failure that to this day continues to be avoided, ignored and intentionally forgotten. But one that can never be forgotten by those that were there, those that are still there and those that will forever have a part of their heart there. Unless you're a blinded partisan, you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a debacle. And you know it may be the biggest and most costly blunder of the Biden administration. Now, that's not a partisan Tucker Carlson attack or Fox News propaganda. That's the nonpartisan independent truth. We all saw it. You watched it on your TVs. Some of you were there in Afghanistan yourselves. And in our hearts, almost all of us know it. And we've heard it personally from guests on this show, ranging from Matt Zeller and Kristen Rouse to Admiral Stravides and Dan Lamoth, many of whom are still, right now, almost two years later, still trying to get threatened Afghan allies out of Afghanistan, helping children who were left behind and supporting veterans who were feeling a deep wound of moral injury. That is what it looks like when you leave your allies behind on the battlefield. That is what wrong looks like. And whether it's wrong or if it's right, war is always bloody, expensive, and hard, and sometimes necessary. The prolonged occupation of Afghanistan was probably not necessary. The initial invasion of Afghanistan probably was, But we can debate all that for decades and we will. But what is not debatable is the incredibly high cost of leaving your allies or even your own Marines and troops to fight and die on their own. If you leave people hanging at the most key moment, war will be even more bloody, even more expensive, and even harder. Because whether they're big or small, right or wrong, Wars are always bloody, expensive, and hard, and some are also necessary. The American Civil War, World War II, the war now against extremism in our own country, the ongoing war for the soul of America, the war to protect the freedom, sovereignty, and very existence of Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is not a war of choice. It's a war of necessity. And after one year of it, for many, it's becoming more and more apparent. But for some who are moved by the propaganda of Putin and injected into the American bloodstream by Tucker Carlson, Fox News, and others, it's not a war we need to fight. Swallowing the propaganda, they think it's a sham. They think it's not about freedom. They think it's a Biden ruse. They think it's a big lie. They think it's too expensive. They think it's wrong. Well, because Biden and his team were wrong about the way they executed the withdrawal of Afghanistan, Putin decided to test us, and he invaded Ukraine. But because Biden and his team were wrong about the way they executed and communicated the withdrawal of Afghanistan, doesn't mean they're also wrong now about Ukraine. And they're not. And anyone who tells you that they are is pushing Putin's talking points, hurting our allies in the West, endangering freedom, and jeopardizing America's national security. Like any great fight, Ukraine is bloody, expensive, hard, and necessary. Just like the fight for civil rights, the fight against violent extremism in America, the fight against Hitler, and the fight against any kind of change that's worth it. And this fight in Ukraine is worth it. Very much worth it, because stakes is high. Yeah. It's March Madness high. every day in Ukraine, and it's an especially brutal and pivotal time for the war right now. And we're strategically digging into what's most important, what new U.S. weapons are possibly en route, and what's likely to happen next, to include breaking down what the hell China is doing, and whether the AUMF is finally going to be gone. All this and much more with a guest who knows combat and strategy. He's been there and done that. He's a returning champion, a true American hero who represents the best of what leadership is really all about, and the best of what America is really all about. A guy who knows a thing or two about war. A guy who knows that war is bloody, expensive, and hard. He's General Barry McCaffrey.
1: Would pick up a gun,
0: shoot up a crowd, trying to have fun. My friend General Barry McCaffrey joined us two years ago, back in episode 85, and he's back again. General Barry McCaffrey is no bullshit. He's a serious man for these serious times. He's also a very cool guy. He served in the U.S. Army for 32 years. When he retired in 1996, He was the most decorated general serving in the US Army, having been awarded three Purple Hearts for wounds received in combat, two Distinguished Service Crosses, the second highest award in the country for valor, and two Silver Stars for valor. He served four combat tours, taught at West Point, has a degree from Harvard, and he's in the US Army Ranger Hall of Fame. He's also a proud father and grandfather. He's lived an incredible life, As I shared last time he was on, when you download his resume from his website, it's 16 pages long. No shit, 16 pages. And it's not overkill. It's appropriate. Because the man has lived and the man has led. You probably know him from TV and his years as a national security and terrorism analyst for NBC News and for MSNBC. You trust him. And you should. Because he knows his stuff. And he knows global security and American politics and he knows war. And better than almost anyone, he knows that war is bloody, expensive, and hard, and sometimes necessary. Just like this conversation, and our continued focus on the war in Ukraine. Welcome to a briefing from the General on what's most important, what's underreported, and what's next. Welcome to a masterclass on Ukraine, China, and America. Welcome to another conversation about war. Yes, another one. Because the war has never stopped, so neither can our conversations about it and our willingness to explore the truth. Welcome to a conversation about wartime, which in 2023 is all the time. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode two, one, three. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, we are going to continue to focus on Ukraine, national security, military affairs in a way, frankly, that most media shows don't and should. I think there's nothing more important. There's nothing more urgent. And I am very privileged, humbled and thrilled to welcome back to the podcast one of the best voices on all these issues and much more, the great and powerful General Barry McCaffrey is back on the show. Welcome back, sir.
1: It's good to be with you, Paul. Uh,
0: sir, it's been last time you were on was two years ago. So I hope we can uh, have you on more often in the days ahead because national security should always be front and center. I want to talk to you about Ukraine. I'd love to get your thoughts on China and, and the general state of the world. Um, but just a baseline question I ask everyone, where are you, sir? And how are you?
1: Well, I'm in Seattle, Washington, home. All three of our adult children's families are out here and, and very happy about it. It's a beautiful part of the country. Lots to do. Sports, water, you know, activities, skiing. It's, a, it's a really a glorious part of the country. So all is well and uh, family is central in our, our life.
0: Sir, can I can I just build on that and ask you because I'm a father of two young boys and you I've always prioritized your, your family and I, I look at you as a, a role model and an inspiration. You know, as, as you get to become a grandfather and you reflect on all of this, do you have any lessons learned or advice or wisdom uh, as, 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 a, as a family man on, on how to keep your family strong and happy and well?
1: Well, that's a new question for me. You know, I personally I think all, all kids are, are different. Uh, the environment is different for uh, children. You know, the family circumstances, you have an intact mom and dad. Uh, they go into a great high school. Teenagers are a huge challenge. Uh, you know what I tell parents there, don't ever give up. Don't let go of them. You know, I, I said Sunday was church, uh, an event. You're staying with your parents on Sunday. <laughs> Frequently was like, having momar gaddafi along for the ride uh, you know so but all three of our kids grew up to be these outstanding adults and they married people just like them and now their families are doing well so there's a lot of luck in life but i think uh strong committed parents and grandparents makes a difference
0: i i so appreciate you sharing that and i, I think that's that's valuable insight especially as we all try to help navigate our families through these, these challenging times. I want to get to, to Ukraine and, and the state of affairs uh, there in particular. But can I ask you, and I'm going to ask you this every time we talk um, how's America doing? Where, where are we as a country? And what are your thoughts and reflections on where America is right now?
1: Well, you know, I, on a standard presentation, I'm talking to a, a Rotary Club. I love Rotary. I, I start with. Uh, Here are the good things about America, and they are unending. I mean, the agricultural output of America, the complexity and integrity of our business community, the size of the armed forces, uh, the goodness of the American people is legendary. I'm discouraged. I think the political leadership and the endless political war over every issue and the irresponsibility Mostly the Republicans in the House is what I would seize upon. But, you know, there's goofy stuff on the left also. So I think the American people are disenchanted and they're increasingly likely to listen to anti-democratic authoritarian voices. It really scares the pants off me. So 2024 uh, promises to be another gigantic, dangerous confrontation of angry people on the left and the right. Uh, We got some some challenges that are unique since the Civil War, since
0: 1865. Sir, digging deeper into that, as these challenges rise, we've talked a lot about the opportunity for independent voices, um, in particular, coming out of the military. I think there's a lack of, of trusted leadership with authenticity and integrity, but you're kind of the prototype of what we hope would be a, a candidate, someone who isn't partisan, who puts country first. You, you never ran for office yourself, at least that I, that I know of. Um, do you see an opportunity for people like you or even the generation younger than you to carve out some kind of a space between those warring factions and to and to move our country forward? How do you feel about that opportunity for independent minded people.
1: Well of course there are increasingly thank God there's some Afghan and Iraq vets that are showing up in, in politics across the country in both parties uh, not just in the, in the Congress but also as uh, you know county executives and city councils and these are some good people and they understand the, uh, America because they served it at, in general you know 60,000 killed and wounded fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. So these people put it on the line. So I think there's that's somewhat encouraged, encouraging. I, you know, I, I always like to tell them what I think is an amusing story. I, the Democrats came to repu- recruit me to run for the Senate when I left being the drug policy director. I was a nonpartisan figure, but they figured, you know, they wanted me to run against Senator Warner, this wonderful World War II, Korean, Vietnam veteran, uh, lovely man, family friend. And uh, several of them came to me and they ran some polling thing. I said, you, we, we think you can appeal to his audience and you can beat him. Uh, and I said, well, that's okay. And so I, I assembled three long-term Virginia voters. We we're voting in Virginia at the time. My sister, my wife, and my dad. And I laid out the pros and cons of running for the Senate against Warner. And they said, well, you know, at the end of the presentation, I said, do whatever you want but we're voting for Warner. so (laughs) My potential political career came to a grinding halt. Uh, As a general statement, I think the senior military people aren't very good political candidates for a variety of reasons. That's not being demeaning either to the military or to politics, but uh, the tendency is more on effective, rapid decision-making and selling it to your organization, you still have to sell it. Uh, whereas in politics, I think a lot of it's the art of the possible mm. and and being ambiguous on where your actual position is. And so, the, you know, the senior military generally don't do well at that in my, my uh, experience.
0: Mm. You know, we've had you on before, we've had uh, Admiral Mike Mullen on, we've had Admiral Stravides on, we've had General Hurtling on, A lot of a lot of folks that that have been independent in 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 leadership and in the public dialogue for a long time. I I know I speak for many of us where I feel like if if we could get everybody together, I mean you know if there was the spirit of Colin Powell and and you know the spirit of John McCain and this sense of patriotism that there is a a real hunger, if not an elected office for some kind of a galvanizing. And I think we saw that maybe in the later days of the Trump administration where folks came (laughs) off the political sidelines. Is there anyone that could do that? Is there anyone that is apolitical or independent? I'm thinking of Mike Bloomberg and others. Is there anyone that you think could bring those folks together to try to rise to this moment from the center or from outside of the traditional two-party system?
1: Well, you know, I. That's uh, such an important topic. Right now, we've got Mr. Biden, who I know quite well and have a lot of respect for. He's 80 years old, for God's sakes. It's way too old uh, to be running for office again. On the other side, we've got the potential for Trump, an utter disaster for the country. Are we going to end up with the two of them as, as our candidates again? I mean, there's 330 million people in this country. For God's sake, you and I meet people during the year, 250 a year. That would be a terrific president in the United States. Some of them have political background, like you know, Amy Klobuchar, uh, but others are running universities and comp- you know, small companies and uh, they're in nonprofits. They're spectacular men and women all over this country in both political parties. Some of the governors are first-rate people and could be potential candidates. And yet here we uh, we have both parties proclaiming all they've got are uh, these two possible candidates. It is a shameful situation. We need men and women of courage and integrity to step forward and run for office, not just the presidency in Congress, but at every, every level.
0: Mm. I want to put that in a TV commercial and you're kind of recruiting for none of the above, which, which I think is, you know, continues to be a barrier. We both know, especially so many young leaders who want to get involved in politics, but they don't want to join a party or they don't want to do the fundraising or they don't want to go through that compromising process. And, and I think there's a, there's a generation of politically homeless that are, that are looking for that galvanization. I hope that we can be a small part of it in these conversations and your leadership is key, but I'm gonna ask you to shift from that. And I should also add, I knew Senator Warner. He was fantastic. He was a leader for us on the GI Bill with Senator Jim Webb, when you had a Democrat and Republican working together, and you would've been a fine Senator. I don't know if you would've beaten him, but you would've been a a fine Senator. Um, But as we talk about America, I I wanna dig into Ukraine and national security, but I wanna ask you a top line question. Sir, do you think the American public appreciates the magnitude of what is happening in Ukraine. I read the stories, we follow it, we talk to people who are there. I mean, the brutality and the scale and scope of the fighting that we're seeing daily. On a very basic level, America had a hard time understanding our own wars. Do you think the country understands how big this is?
1: Probably not. We haven't seen anything like this since World War II. And, you know, I, I tell people I have three combat tours and visited combat zones, Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it, over the years. I've never encountered anything like this. You know, the longest battle I was in in Vietnam uh, lasted probably seven days. Uh, the Gulf War, my division uh, was in combat for four days. Uh, so what we're seeing in Ukraine is is really unusual. This is a you know 800 mile uh, front. Uh, this is massive amounts of artillery and casualties, arguably 300,000 killed and wounded in the two uh, fighting components, tens of thousands of civilians murdered by the Russians in Ukraine. So it is appalling, and the consequences uh, of Ukraine losing control, its democracy, its sovereign territory, uh, would be catastrophic in the view of many of us, both to Western Europe, and as a sort of an example to President Xi in China, what's possible in Taiwan. So there's a lot at stake in this. And there's an inadequate, I think, sense of understanding that, you know, this isn't, another Afghanistan uh, which was a counter-terrorism operation gone bad uh but this is vital to U.S national security and that of our allies meaning the Europeans
0: you've been a great uh conscience on this issue and and I I've, I've seen all your comments most of your commentary and I always look to you for guidance and you know one one of my critiques i think biden has generally done a, a, a strong job here and there's been a lot to 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 commend him for but i still feel like he made a bush like mistake a year ago when, at the state of the union and in the subsequent conversations and that he didn't really prepare america for how long and hard and expensive this was going to be and he didn't make that case that it was going to cost a lot it was going to take a lot but it would be worth it and here we are a year later the fighting drags on can i ask you to to um To help us maybe frame that up Uh, because now we're talking about f-16s which is the latest issue in kind of a long string of mother may eyes where the ukrainians have to keep coming back and say can i have this can i have that um do you feel like it's the point at the point now where america needs to open the floodgates we need to send f-16s we need to send whatever they need or do we continue on this course of of kind of a a one-off 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 series of conversations with Supplemental funding and, and one piece rather than the whole kit and caboodle. Well,
1: you, you know, you raise an important point. I, I, I've been in the National Security Council meetings for three administrations, you know, as a number three, as a number two, and as, as a principal during the Clinton administration for various issues. And, you know, the president's got tremendous uh, support, brilliant people in the National Security Council state. Uh, JCS, uh, but they're capable of handling three issues at the same time. That's it, and then we get overwhelmed. And there's a thousand issues out there on a given given day, and the president's keenly, always, all of them, aware that his legacy is what he's working toward, and and you know that means don't escalate to a nuclear war, don't escalate to a European-wide war, Uh, don't get involved in, uh, you know, open electronic warfare, cyber warfare against uh, the Russians against the rest of the world. So I'm sympathetic to his problem. Having said that, the worst possible outcome of the Ukraine operation would be to spend literally billions of dollars, 40 to 100 billion, when you throw in the economic support, and then have them lose their sovereignty, and have millions of Ukrainians flooding into Western Europe, and to have emboldened Putin to then go after the Baltic states, or Romania, or Poland, or to have Z conclude, hey, we can get away with this also. And that means at some point, you have to take decisive action. And uh, by the way, Russia has to pay a price. It's not enough to give them the best air defense system in the world and have them shoot down most of the terrible attacks on civilian infrastructure. At some point, Russia has to hurt and not just mothers who are losing their sons. So, you know, I've said for the last year, we got to give these people a deep strike capability. Lethal drones, Atacums. Uh F-16s, probably they're harder to get to deliver the goods on. The maintenance chain is very complex. The training may be a year. Apache helicopters, it takes us two years to take some nice young man or woman in the U.S. and turn them into Apache pilots. So those are tougher, but ATACMS ought to be there now. And we ought to encourage the Ukrainians with giving them the targets to go after the Russian army in the most painful way possible. We need to go after the Russian fleet out in the Black Sea, which is pounding civilian targets in Ukraine. So I think they've, they've got to come to a crossroads here and decide, look, we're going to make this thing work.
0: You articulate it much more clearly than the White House does. And and I think that's part of what's frankly been missing. I think that President Biden has struggled at times to communicate things with a point. Um, And and we've seen U.S. support. I was on a show recently and they said, you know, why is U.S. support dropping for Ukraine? Well, U.S. support generally drops for wars over time. But you've also got people like Tucker Carlson and others banging away at at least a percentage of this every day. Um, The fighting in Bakhmut is ferocious right now I want to ask you a question I, I don't think I've asked anyone else and, and I feel like I can ask you why have the Ukrainians not hit inside Russia if I were them and, and I was thinking about how to hurt Russia to your point I would be finding ways either guerrilla or conventional to strike inside Russia it even amazes me that if we're holding them back we've been able to do that but in your perspective why aren't they blowing things up all the time inside Russia if I was a young Ukrainian. That's what I would want to do. How have they not done that yet, or why have they not done that yet?
1: Well, I think they've done, they've done some of it. They've clearly gone after deep targets, to include the strategic air power that's firing cruise missiles into uh, Ukrainian civilian cities. So, and they went after the Kurtz Bridge, and and they've gone after uh, the, the fleet in Sevastopol. We, they don't have very many tools. You know, they've got some fighter aircraft, I suppose, on a one-way mission could strike, you know, the Minister of Defense in Moscow. Uh, but they are also, I'm sure, extremely wary of giving Putin more uh, arguments to mobilize his own people. Uh, so, but I think when we give them ATACMS, which I hope we do, three or four or five hundred of them, the targets ought to be out to the match three hundred kilometer range of that weapon, and that means anywhere that the Russian military, air, sea, or ground power are attacking Ukraine are legitimate targets. Of course, the challenge is Putin. I've, you know, I've been an arms control negotiator for years. Uh, in the JCS, dealing with the Russians, Ukrainians, you name it, nuclear, chemical, biological. I have never seen anything like the dangerous rhetoric out of the Russians. You know, courtesy of this uh, great journalist in in Kiev, I listen to Russian state TV, translated subtitles every night. And the things that are said by members of the Duma, by um, generals in their armed forces, by Putin himself, are incredible to hear. Uh, is it like, you know, strike Berlin, Paris, London with nuclear devices, Washington, DC firing nuclear torpedoes that'll put a tsunami over all of the UK, which of course is nonsense. Uh, there's no possibility of Russia or any state surviving a strategic nuclear exchange. Why are they saying this? Why are they threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons? What are they going to do, hit Kiev and kill 60,000 civilians? What will that get them? Are they going to try and target a Ukrainian battalion uh, in Bakhmut uh, with a you know, 20KT weapon? None of this makes any sense. So it has, to some extent, I think understandably, intimidated both Zelensky and the U.S. administration and the Western Europeans. Germany and France are wobbly on this whole their electorates so you know uh it, it's been a, a, a challenge to to think through this if we allow any nuclear state to intimidate the U.S the West the Democratic states into acquiescence to aggression we are making a permanent error but that's the president's job to struggle with that and so far he's been Uh, I think, uh, partially intimidated by this unbelievable rhetoric out of the Russians.
0: I'm I'm so glad you framed it up that way, uh, because I think that 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 really is an important part for everyone to understand. As we are a year later, everyone was concerned, if we did this, they would use nukes. If we did this, they would use nukes. And there, you know, this kind of hostage situation that Putin had created with the entire world that worked to his advantage, right? You know, they were worried about that terrible thing and he did all kinds of other terrible things in, in the meantime. But can I ask you, sir, to, to pull out, pull back out? You know, obviously you mentioned Xi and China. Um, there were reports this week that the Chinese were supplying weapons to the Ukraine that now that maybe be walked back, I'm not sure what the latest is, but what is your prediction for how this plays out? Um, if you were gonna put it down on uh, in a piece of paper and lock it in a box, How long do you think uh, this goes on in Ukraine? I know it's difficult to predict, but I feel like I can ask you better than anyone. And what do you think China will do in the next few years?
1: Well, China China has now turned into a one-person dictatorship. Essentially, Xi controls the state. He controls the party. Uh, He controls a surveillance apparatus that dominates the Chinese people, uh, he's got tenacity. He'll go after his opponents, no matter how small the issue. Uh, you know, COVID, uh, just an astonishing uh, change. Uh, China was never a democracy, but they did listen. They had internal struggles and factions, of the party, and they were clearly turning into a successful capitalistic state uh, with a lot more freedom than they'd ever seen in their life all while that's going. So I think we're not too sure about China anymore. Uh, they're unlikely to want to get involved in Russia's war. I'd be astonished if they ever send a Chinese military person to take direct part in that struggle. Uh, but I can see them, Z saying, hey, why don't we uh, mire the U.S. and the West down in this endless struggle. will give the Russians just enough artillery ammunition uh-huh. to keep them fighting until they finally rise up and, and do away with Putin. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know where all this is going. From a strategic sense, Putin's blown it. He can't seize all of Ukraine. If he tries and looks like he's going to succeed, it would be very possible to see NATO entering the struggle, maybe with just air power. Uh, But so he's got to be aware of that. By the way, if you have a secret agent inside the White House, inside Paris, inside London, uh, you're not going to know how the West will react to things like a Russian tactical nuclear strike or uh, an attempt to seize all of uh, Ukraine or an attack on the Baltic states. We don't have a plan for that. When it happens, Putin will find out along with the rest of us what we're energized to do. And the power of Western Europe and the United States is so awesome compared to the rump state of the Russian Federation. Their economy stinks. It basically depends upon selling oil and natural gas. There's nothing else there anybody wants. Their economy is less than that of Italy, less than that of California, less than that of Texas, Uh, and it's getting worse. The economic embargo, this wonderful uh, Professor Snyder up at Yale University, points out that their economy is in the the pits. So I think strategically, Ukraine's in a good position. But, you know, Paul, you were a rifle platoon leader in combat. I've been a rifle platoon leader in combat, a company commander, a battalion advisor. A division commander. But I tell people, every time I you give me a military equation, I'm going to think about it as a company commander in high-intensity combat. And the Ukrainians can't keep this up forever. They're taking serious losses of their best people, men and women, killed, maimed. Uh, I think the economic disaster in Ukraine, they're more likely to be able to handle. But so at some point, we've got to step in and give them a technological advantage to force the, um, the Russians to negotiate what that would look like, as anybody's guess, unlikely that the Ukraine will ever get back Crimea. That's just a personal viewpoint. Okay. Um, but, <clears throat> but, but clearly, Putin is in a
0: disaster, excuse me, <clears throat> and we'll have to find a way out. Sir, as we, one thing I've I've tried to underscore to people who don't seem to appreciate the scope of this is, you know, given the less than 10, 5% of our overall defense budget that we've expended from the US, that we've been able to support the destruction of a significant percentage, you you may know the exact percentage, 40, 50% of the Russian military capacity, which for our national interest seems like a pretty good return on investment. If we said 10 years ago, hey, we're going to spend 5%, 10% of our budget to knock out you know, a quarter or half of the Russian military, that would seem like a pretty good return on investment to our national defense and our national security. But as we have this discussion, there's still the forever war of for the United States going on. There are combat operations in Somalia. Um, there were wounded troops in, in Syria uh, a few weeks ago, U.S. troops. Can you just talk about the AUMF, which is now being debated in Congress, finally, I think, overdue, and the other side of what is now America is not only forever war, but it's our our hidden war. Most Americans aren't tracking on Ukraine. They're definitely not tracking on what U.S. forces are doing in Somalia, Syria, and other places. Can you give us your assessment of that and whether or not you think the AUMF will be gone?
1: Well, I tell you, I probably have a different view on AUMF Congress does not want to be held responsible for approving or disapproving U.S. military operations at all. It's all woofing. And I don't think the administration wants them to push them into that situation either. Uh, they're ill equipped to do that. Uh, and so mostly they will make noises and hoot and about it. And uh, what we need to do is uh, to, uh, to elect presidents, and, and the Senate in particular, who are people of wisdom, and caution, and education, and uh, who always try and use the other elements of U.S. national power, our values, our uh, covert action, our economic power in lieu of, of combat. Uh, but you, got, you almost have to cede this to the executive branch, And so I think, you know, occasionally you'll see uh, a Republican and a Democrat come together and say forever wars and, uh, you know, who who gave them the legal authority to do this? And the lawyer, as you know, lawyers in Washington, D.C., it's astonishing. The Department of Justice will have a legal position on a conflict. So will states' lawyers. So will defense lawyers. So will the White House Office of Counsel. Uh, it's just astonishing. And at some point, the politicians will say, hey, wait a minute. We got to do something to solve this problem, and they'll act. So AMF, I think, is a false argument. Uh, if we don't like what the president is doing, we got to run him out of office. Now, by the way, both Trump and Biden clearly ran for office. Trump may have changed his mind, but ran for office saying, I'm going to get us out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And they did. And it was a bloody-minded scene when we got out, but that was a legitimate political decision by the President of the United States. Then everybody turned on it and said, how dare you suffer this catastrophic withdrawal? By the way, Afghanistan, 130,000 people didn't chase us down to the airfield with bricks. They chased us down to the airfield and got on the planes. So I don't know. I you know I think uh, to some extent Congress is dysfunctional. They can't do anything. They can't pass a defense budget until we're six months, nine months into the year. Uh, Who ever heard of running a company with seventy employees and you didn't have a budget until your year was almost done? Congress can't approve people for public office. They can't get the Senate organized to vote on it. You know, it's just, um, it turned into gridlock over every issue, both large and small. And so you got these sense of extremists dominating the primary voting system who are driving us toward uh, governmental uh, incompetence.
0: Sir, I always look to you for your military and defense analysis but your political analysis is, is sometimes even more important to me because you understand and you articulate the merging of the two. And, and you know our, our national security and our overall national health is so crippled right now by the dysfunction in Congress. And it's something you've been shining a light on for a long time and I, I thank you for that. Um, I wanna let you go, you're gonna stick around for a couple extra bonus questions for our Patreon members. Um, but you've been a tremendous voice for us during these, these hard times and during COVID, during Ukraine, during Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm so grateful for that. Can I ask you to just end with one, one question, sir? Any any wisdom that you would want to share with your grandkids about uh, navigating tough times in America? We've all gone through it. I think a lot of folks are tired, exhausted, frustrated. But any, any, any guidance or, or uh, I don't want to ask you for a pep talk. Uh, if it's not warranted, but but just wisdom from you on getting through these hard times as an American.
1: Well, I'm sorry I don't have my dad still with me. You know, every time I get uh, in my guts a turmoil of something U.S. government is doing or the manner of the American people, remember, we've had tough times before. The 70s were no picnic. Uh, racism, uh, opposition to the Vietnam War, burning down American cities, uh, attacks on National Guard uh, so, so dad would always look at something like this and he'd say, oh, come on, Barry, we've had worse times than this. We always get through this. Uh, d- never bet against the American people. And I think he was right. Of course, I'd say, well, when was it worst?" And he'd say, well, the Civil War was really, you know, I need something more recent to work with than that. Uh, so I think, you know, I've got six grandchildren. They're all the healthiest kids imaginable. Uh, they're all uplifting, positive, physically healthy, engaged, honest, uh, non-drug using a huge problem in our society also. But then you turn around and you go, I'm talking to you from Seattle. We got 11,000 homeless people out here, mentally okay. ill, uh, drug using. Uh, last year, the country had 107,000 people die from drug overdose, a higher rate of loss than World War II. So our challenge in America is, our politicians aren't very good. Uh, we're not putting the best and the brightest up there. We're not finding middle ground. We're not getting pragmatic solutions, but we will. We'll get through this. It's a great, powerful country and it's, it's a meritocracy and there's opportunity out there, uh, but it's it's tougher on some groups than others.
0: Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your continued sacrifice and for your example. You're, you're a great American. You've been a great uh, source of stability for all of us during difficult times. And I really appreciate you taking time to come back on the program and, and all you do, sir. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Paul. I love talking to that man. I love hearing from that man. I wish I could have a beer or ice cream with him every week, but he is truly a great American hero. And he's an example of a helper. General Barry McCaffrey is a real one and a true role model. And he is definitely a helper.
1: Always look for the helpers.
0: There there will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. On every show, I try to highlight the helpers. So check the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and you can share yours. And if you're a regular on this show, you know I love helpers. You also know I love music, especially the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl. And you know I love barbecue. Well, this story about a helper has all three together. Yes, my friends. The LA Times entertainment reporter Emily St. Martin had a great piece on it turns out Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl took his newfound love of grilling to the streets and cooked for more than 450 homeless people. The Foo Fighters and Nirvana legend showed up at Hope the Mission's Trebek Center in Northridge last week with brisket, ribs, pork butt, and some barbecue smokers and a heart of gold. And he got right down to work with that Dave Grohl intensity, trimming the fat from the meats and prepping them up for the smoker just as a big storm hit Los Angeles. And he was doing it at the Trebek Center, which is named after the late host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. Turns out Alex Trebek and his wife Jean were helpers too. They donated half a million dollars to Hope the Mission, and that donation went toward purchasing the Los Angeles roller skating rink Skateland, which was converted into a 107-bedroom shelter and named after Trebek. Well, and that's where Dave Grohl showed up. President of the organization, Rowan Vansleeve, which is a great name, by the way, Vansleeve, just sounds like a rock and roll kind of name, said he was ecstatic when he learned that one of his favorite rock stars wanted to cook for the shelter. But Rowan was heading to Las Vegas to participate in a 350-mile run from Sin City to Los Angeles in an effort to raise $350,000 to fund three new family centers for Hope the mission. This guy's a badass, too. But those new centers would be able to shelter approximately 400 families of mothers and children. So Grohl told Vansleeve he could handle the barbecue without him, and he'd even try to save him a rib. And as Vansleeve was running hundreds of miles through the desert— He started getting updates from his staff back at the Trebek Center. And everybody was blown away. He said, there's this megastar walking around, hugging, and just loving on people. And he starts to light all the fires at 11 p.m. And this is when the massive storm hits. So he's out there last Wednesday to Thursday. It's pouring down. The area's flooded. And he stayed out there from midnight until I think it was 6 a.m. when the meat stopped resting. After the meat was smoked and the beans and the coleslaw were prepped, the best-of-you singer called his family and friends to join in serving the food. And when the ribs and brisket and pork butt were all gone and all the people were fed, Dave Grohl deep-cleaned the entire kitchen. Dave Grohl, rock and roll legend and helper. Helpers are out there, folks. I'm telling you, they come in all forms. So look for them. They include Dave Grohl, and they include someone in your life. Post them on social media and use the hashtag LookForTheHelpers, and I'll do my best to elevate your heroes. And while you're on social, reading more about Dave Grohl's awesomeness or listening to some of his music, join me and play Guess the Guest every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night, I will post a mystery picture of our upcoming guest for Thursday's show, and you have to guess who it is. Last week, we had Governor Wes Moore, the newly elected governor of Maryland, an awesome episode. If you haven't checked that out, go check it out. It's one of our highest rated in the last couple of months. But a lot of you got it. On Instagram, our friend Nate Goldstein correctly guessed Wes Moore. Our friend Sean, the kilted CB out in the Pacific Northwest, got it. He wrote, who can it be? Only the best America has to offer. A true statesman, a man of the people, a proud veteran, the great Wes Moore. Well said, my friend. On Facebook, my old friend Army Colonel Ray Kimball got it. On Twitter, my friend Claire Owens got it, saying, I got it by his profile and smile, my not-so-secret crush, Wes Moore. On LinkedIn, my old friend Michael Blazer down in Nashville, Tennessee got it. And right before I went into the room to record, I checked on Instagram, and Nate Holdstein got it again, correctly guessing General Barry McCaffrey in this episode. So many of you are playing guest to guest. I welcome you to play every Wednesday. Join our friend Delfino Sanchez, who continues to rack up the points. Play online and send your questions. You can get on board and join this crew every Wednesday, and be sure to check independentamericans.us for more. You can find video of every show. You can see our archives going back to our last episode with General McCaffrey, our episode with Wes Moore, our episodes with Ken Burns, and plenty of other guests, over 200 episodes. Go check them out at independentamericans.us. You can also support this show by joining our Patreon community. Throw us a couple bucks and you will get exclusive benefits. want to give a shout out to our Patreon members, especially Dave Quartel, who sent a message. He said, hey, still love the show. Great topics, guests, and music. But how could you leave out Daniel Jones in your quarterback list in episode 212? As a big blue fan, you got to wedge him in. If you have an opportunity, you're the best. I appreciate that, Dave. More on Daniel Jones coming up. Denise Kipschel also commented on Patreon saying happy birthday to your young man. As I shared last week, it was River's fourth birthday. Thank you to Denise for that. And Mark Reed, one of our most dedicated supporters, said he loved the artwork in the preview video I posted. Thank you, Mark, for checking out that video and for all you do to support this show. Join them. Become a patron. It's all at independentamericans.us. And if you're a patron, you'll also get extra content with General Barry McCaffrey. I'll tell you what he listens to. What kind of music do you think General Barry McCaffrey listens to? If you're a patron, you will find out. You'll also find out the surprising kind of music his wife listens to. Hint, it's rap music. Yes, really. He'll tell you what he likes to watch, and he'll tell you his favorite Easter candy. It is not Peeps. And how he keeps in shape by not eating candy or apparently lunch. He's 80 years old, people, and he's amazing. And you get more if you're a Patreon member. Thank you to all of you. You also listen to the show with no ads. You get discounts on merch. And you help us keep it going. That's all at independentamericans.us. While you're there, you can also see recent media hits that I've done and other interesting stuff. A reminder, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, you can check me out in a weekly segment on News Nation with Marnie Hughes. We focus on national security, vets, and political news of the week. We skipped the last two weeks because of the murder trials going on. We will be back today thursday march 9th and in most of the thursdays to come look for that in news nation on your cable dial or at newsnation.com there'll also be a link in the show notes be sure to hit me up on all the social media platforms on twitter on facebook on instagram and wherever you're listening subscribe right now to this podcast especially if you're new welcome and if you're not share do all the things you do subscribe link tweet but most of all share and together we can keep fighting on Because the war to improve and defend America continues. Even when it's bloody, expensive, and hard. Because it's necessary. And because we're winning. And we are moving up the grid fast. We're getting faster. We're moving up the leaderboard. We're getting closer to pole position and we're racking up the points. We're speeding up the dialogue, the energy, our politics, and this country. Because America's more divided than ever before, but we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are racing to change that, adding light to contrast all the heat of the other political shows. So if you're among those 50% of Americans who are independent, this is your crew. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, but not a die hard partisan, this is your crew. And if you're a concerned American who cares about the future of your country, this is your crew. All are welcome. We invite you to be a part of the solution and join the pit crew for the independent leader. Our independent movement is gaining steam and speed fast and setting the pace for others, bringing people together in new ways around shared values and putting country over party. And we continue to win and rack up the points. And related, in our independent movement, there's some breaking news. We have successfully defeated closed primary legislation in Tennessee. This happened just this week. It's a big win for all Tennesseans and all Americans. Big shout out to all the local activists who made this possible and to our friends at Open Primaries. You can check out their website or follow them on social media for the latest. And they're also flagging for us that the front edge of our independent fight is now in New Mexico. For far too long, our friends and neighbors have been blocked from participating in taxpayer-funded primary elections just because they aren't enrolled in a political party. There are 300,000 independent voters in New Mexico. That's 25% of all voters, and they're blocked out. Half of those voters are vets. But now, the New Mexico legislature has the opportunity to right this wrong by supporting SB73, The primary election voting requirements. Now, SB 73 has already passed the Senate with significant bipartisan support. Now, members of the House of Reps have to hear from our voters. So if you're in New Mexico, reach out. Encourage the legislature to pass this initiative and let every voter vote. Let independents vote. Even if you're not in New Mexico, you can reach out and push and fight. It's a critical fight. It won't be bloody. It won't be that expensive. And maybe it won't even be that hard. But it is necessary. It's a critical fight in our independent movement. That fight is necessary. But some fights are unnecessary, even reckless, maybe silly. So are some campaigns. And with another piece of breaking news, in the latest addition to the 2024 presidential election, Joe Biden officially now has his first Democratic challenger, Marion Williamson. The best-selling self-help author and super-progressive is back, but her effort is beyond hard. It might be futile, because Biden is starting the 2024 race with a 73-point lead over his only primary opponent, Marianne Williamson. So as this new race starts, she's not even on the grid. March is about madness, and March is also a damn fun time for sports. Baseball spring training is here. If you really need football stuff, there's the NFL Combine and all kinds of free agent moves happening. Derek Carr is going to New Orleans. My Giants re-signed quarterback Daniel Jones for way too long and way too much, sidebar. Jones had a nice year, singular, but he wilted against the Eagles in the clutch And I'm hoping for the best, but I still think four years is way too much, and he does not deserve this kind of elite money. But if they can keep Saquon Barkley and Dexter Lawrence, who must be the priorities, I'm okay with it in the end. But as we talked about in the show, Coach of the Year, Brian Dable is rebuilding the culture, and he got it right last year. And so he is a true leader, a culture-changing leader, and I trust him to make the moves that he thinks he needs to keep it going. We haven't had a coach at the Giants we could say that of in over a decade. But the March Madness continues, including the real March Madness. College basketball playoffs start next week. NBA playoffs are coming soon. NHL hockey is really fun. UFC is really fun. With a massive John Bones Jones heavyweight fight last weekend where he jumped up to heavyweight and was very impressive, defining his role as the greatest of all time, now also a heavyweight champ. Submitting Cyril Gain in the first round, truly the greatest. And what a wild ride to watch it's been for John Jones, who would of course be welcome on this show. UFC is certainly bloody expensive and hard. But speaking of only the expensive and hard part, just as we're missing football the most, F1 is finally back. Yes, people, if you're a fan, you know what that music means. F1 racing, Formula One racing is back. Now, I really miss seeing my favorite driver, Daniel Ricciardo, in the lineup. But there is important news. We finally got an American driver and a guy named Logan Sargent. When the new season opened this week in Bahrain, The 22-year-old driver from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, became the first American on the Formula One grid since 2015. And he said, being from America, I think we're all very patriotic, and I love where I'm from. He said, I want to do the best I can to represent the U.S. to the best of my ability, but I'm more looking forward to having three races in the U.S. So Logan Sargent is coming, and it's not without a political angle. Logan's uncle, Harry Sargent III, is an oil and shipping billionaire in Florida where he once served as the state's GOP finance chairman, and he was linked to the impeachment of Donald Trump. But separating all that, Logan Sargent is an American on the grid. If you've never watched, F1 is the best and most immersive camera work in sports. It's just really exciting stuff. And reigning champion and my son Ryder's favorite driver, Max Verstappen, won it. Checo Perez took two, Red Bull going one and two. And what a race for Fernando Alonso, who finished a surprising third. It looks like we're in for another fun season. And a solid first race for American Logan Sargent, finishing 12th. Now, all American eyes will be on him this season. And more and more eyes will be on F1. And because this is independent Americans, you know, we're also tracking on IndyCar racing, too. And they had a hell of a race in St. Pete, Florida this week with more on the way. But it's time to start Sundays early again, and it's going to be a really fun season of racing. So let's go. Yes, March is continuing to roar, and there is lots of madness. F1 is one of the fastest growing sports in America, and it's gone from a fascinating and sometimes weird outsider thing to fully mainstream. It's gone from a phenomenon into a movement, one that's taking the country by storm. This year, there will be three races in the U.S., Miami, Texas, and Las Vegas in the strip at night. Three races in the U.S. That'll be more than in any other country in the world. And this year, we finally have our American driver, with likely more on the way. F1 is now inevitable and unstoppable, much like our independent movement. It's gaining steam, popularity, and support fast, blowing up the space for more open primaries, and soon to launch more and more candidates, and eventually, maybe, a president. But like any great race car, we need not just great drivers. We need great teams we need great pick crews, and we need a great engine. And I continue to be focused on building that. I'm working on building the first engine to identify and empower the hundreds of millions of politically independent, unaffiliated Americans to protect and defend and improve American democracy. I helped do it for veterans, and I think I can help do it again for independence. We can create an engine that will establish the largest and deepest data set of independence ever collected. We can reform the American election system. We can enfranchise tens of millions of people. We can enable voting and civic participation, promote trusted technology advances, empower a new generation of public servant leaders, encourage civility and moderation, combat disinformation, and battle extremism. And it could be an engine that could be replicated to reach countries around the world that are facing dangerously deep political division and rising extremism. I introduced that concept of an engine to you last year. I called it Operation Independence. It's the engine for our movement. And just like the team at Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes, I continue to tinker with it, trying to find ways to get more power and more speed. And I invite you to help me. Check out OperationIndependence.com. It'll also be linked in the show notes. Our movement is growing. And like an F1 car, it's getting faster and faster. I hope you enjoyed this episode and our conversation with General Barry McCaffrey. If you did, please share it far and wide. Help us pick up steam and invite others to get on our crew in our pit crew for this independent movement. One that seeks to build and elevate instead of dividing and tearing people down. It's getting faster and faster and more and more popular. So stay vigilant, my friend. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this pit crew together. I'm your host and crew chief, Paul Reikhoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava, Ukraini, And stay vigilant, America. It's lights out. And away we go. Righteous Media.